Welcome to Work and the Future, a podcast about tomorrow, with your host, Linda Nazareth. Well, hello, and thank you for joining us today. You know, the gig economy is something that seems to stir up some strong emotions in people. I've talked a lot about it and written a lot about it over the past couple of years, the idea that companies are going to start paying for the services they want rather than hiring people and just getting them to do things once they're on staff. In many ways, it is more efficient to pay for gigs. Now, this brings up lots of questions about income stability and whether people would rather have a job. But for some people, particularly professional workers with skills that are in demand, it can be a better way to work. So I don't think we should look at it as necessarily a negative thing. It'll just be part of the diverse overall labor market that we're going to see. We're already seeing, but we're especially going to see after the pandemic. So I wanted to talk about that with someone today, the gig economy and and really the pros of it, as well as the cons. And I'm really happy to be joined by Marion McGovern. Now, she is, well, a longtime gig worker and definitely a high-end gig worker. She's had some consulting firms. Now she's a writer and a speaker, and she talks a lot about all of these subjects. She's also the chair of the Meyer Briggs Company, as well as doing other things, which she'll talk about. Uh, she has looked at gig work from lots of different ways, and she has some really interesting insights on it. So I was able to have a really good conversation with her, definitely worth listening to, and definitely thinking about how you feel about this, because it's not going away. So please stay with us. Well, what is the pandemic doing to the professional side of the gig economy? And what will it all look like when this is over? Well, to talk about that, I'm joined now by Marion McGovern. Now, Marion has tracked the independent talent market for a long time. She was a consultant. More recently, she's been an author. She has two books on the subject, Thriving in the Gig Economy and a New Brand of Expertise. And as, a, and as well, she's a professional gig worker herself as a board member and a speaker. She joins us now from San Francisco. Hi, Marion. Thanks so much for being here. It is a pleasure. You know, as I often say, I was in the, the gig economy before anyone even coined the term. So back in the 80s, I started a company that matched independent consultants with projects. So that whole professional segment of the gig worker has been around a long time. I don't think people realize that, but I actually was going to ask you about that. You know, can you tell us about your own background, how you got to this place where you're an expert on this? Yes, as I say, I started M Squared Consulting in 1988, so I'm dating myself right there. I had been a consultant myself with Booz Allen and Hamilton and saw situations where the they do great work, but the team of smart MBAs might not necessarily be the answer. And I saw a number of people leaving the field, and not only the consulting field, but advertising and other places, the, the whole notion of living on planes, which of course right now we'd like to live on planes again. But um, back then, people were were leaving and setting up their own shingle. So I, uh, like a good consultant, surveyed the marketplace to say, you know, if you could tap this reservoir of talent, would you? And if you could work that way, would you? And there was a resounding maybe. So I went ahead and started the company. I grew it to about $25 million in sales uh, with offices throughout California and then sold it to a South African public company. 
along the way, I also started a second company around the employment compliance issue, the independent contractor issue, which is a huge murky employment law issue here in America. But it was a defensive move because I had to be sure that my clients felt safe engaging my consultants. And if having a compliance company helped me do that, that was what I was going to do. So I've been around, I exited those companies when I sold my business um, in 2005. I, I went back as an interim CEO for a year and a half in 2010. So I, I, I've, I've done my time in this space and it has changed a lot in large part because technology has created a much less fractured marketplace. And well, let's talk, sorry, don't, don't we sort of drop, but I'd like to like put this in perspective, like the history of the gig economy, when you started to now, what's the change in your estimation? How prevalent is it? Well, you know, when we started, it was predominantly senior business people because who else could feel comfortable that they had expertise to sell? So they were, I used to liken it to speculators, you know, the good speculators would make money and stay in business. The bad ones would have to go back to regular work. So the change became, came with the, the initial digital movement with the arrival of the internet, because all of a sudden you had a bimodal distribution. You had the very senior guys across major functional fields, you know, finance, marketing, technology, etc. But in the, in the internet world and the, the search engine world and all that stuff that was happening in the early 2000s, that was dominated by a younger cohort because it was younger folks going into the tech company and all of a sudden coming out. So that pattern has increased to the point where it is um, definitely a marketplace that is now dominated by millennials. But that only happened in 2019 or, or 2017, rather. So up until then, boomers still were the largest cohort of the independent worker marketplace uh, in the professional segment. And uh, obviously, boomers also made more money because they were they had the seniority and the expertise to demand it. But in certain fields, you know, think digital marketing and SEO optimization and things like that, it was often a, a younger complement. So now millennials do make up, I want to say 39 to 40% of the market based, but boomers are in the, still in the high thirties. They are still the second largest demographic cohort. I think the other thing that has changed is not just that seniority mix, but also the, the purpose, if you will. I mean, most studies show that people are working this way because they like flexibility and they like the the control, the ability to control when they work, for whom they work, what kind of work they do, how they are paid, that that whole notion of, of entrepreneurism, if you will, but that a whole other dimension of that is upskilling. And I found it really curious when I was doing the research for uh, my second book, that there was a group, especially in the technology sector, that was using the gig world to
to upskill themselves. So maybe you're a software developer and you know Ruby, but you really want to learn Python, but you can't get that job in your current firm in Python because you've never done anything in Python. So you figure out Python, you go on a couple of gig platforms, maybe Fiverr or Upwork or TopTal, although TopTal probably wouldn't uh, take you because they only take the, the top 10% in any field or so they say, but you get some Python gigs. And by virtue of having those Python gigs, you now are more marketable and you now may be able to get to go out on your own and or take a different job in your own company. So there is this aspect of people using uh, the gig structure, the project environment, if you will, to be able to enhance their own human capital. That's a really interesting point. And I think it brings up something else, that this is voluntary for a lot of these workers in tech and higher skilled areas. This is where they want to be. And I feel like I have to say that because I think the media, it gives us a fairly negative view on this quite often. And some people aren't really happy with it, but many, many people are. Absolutely. In fact, there are, there's a data problem I don't want to get into because it's, it's convoluted. Um, but there isn't really great statistics on the gig economy. The government start, stopped keeping track. But there are some good studies that have, um, that have history. So two of them, one is called the State of Independence in America, and the other is called Freelancing in America. Sorry, it's both American, but it is what it is. Um, but both of them say that uh, 70% of people are doing it by choice. So again, this whole, they're only working this way because they can't find a quote unquote real job is totally a myth. Another statistic that came out was that in the Freelancing in America study last year was that uh, over half of the folks studied would not return to regular employed work, regardless of the amount of compensation. And part of that, quite frankly, is that flexibility dimension. It, it's, it's a want and a need. A lot of people need that flexibility for, for personal reasons, for family reasons, for the fact that, you know, I, I knew some very senior consultants who were writing the great American novel or one guy who was a sculptor. Uh, in fact, he tried to, to avoid going into anybody's offices because he wanted to be able to be dirty because he was a sculptor. <laughs> um, so people are doing this for multiple reasons. Um, another interesting stat was, uh, in 2012, when the study first started, this is the um, independent state of independence in America. They asked people how financially, whether they felt more financially secure as an independent worker than as an employee. And at that time, 2012, 32% yes, said yes. In 2019, 51% said yes. So that I think is one of the more interesting uh, developments is that it has become more accepted and just as uh, deemed just as financially secure as what many people think is, you know, most secure, which is employed work, which I've never understood because you get fired at any point in time. You know what? I think that too. I mean, people say they want to be, they want the security of this, but then when they do get fired and it happens all the time in the corporate world, they're devastated because it was all or nothing. If you're a gig worker, you learn to have a lot of different projects. And, you know, this has been a problem in the U.S. around financial products. 
because I can't tell you how many times we were asked to verify someone's income. And I would have to acknowledge to the financial institution that this is not employment income. This is independent work income. And, you know, it's a different tax structure for that. So uh, the, the W-2, which is the U.S. form of employment income that documents what you earn, I, it was like it was magic. And they didn't want to, you know, if it wasn't W-2 income, a bank wouldn't accept it for a mortgage. And finally, that is starting to change. Banks yeah, well, and, and elsewhere too. I mean, yes. we're not used to the structure, and banks particularly like the security of knowing someone's going to pay you every single week until they don't, right? Whereas I, you can make the argument that someone who earns $100,000 year over year, where, by the way, 30% of independent workers do are considered high earners earning $100,000 year over year, um, on your own, isn't that a better demonstration of your credit worthiness? I agree. I don't disagree at all, but I find it's a lo- not a losing battle, but it's a battle you have to fight to make people think this is not a bad thing. You know, I want to talk about the pandemic because I think we can't. I th- can't not talk about it. There's a lot of people trying this out now, perhaps not as enthusiastically as they, they would have. Um, they're forced into it and they're learning this. How will it change, change the whole landscape of gig work? You know, the, the truth of the matter is it it has created a, a profound change, but one that I think will take a while to sink in because it had been before that, you know, and, and again, I've been doing this for years and years and there would be hiring managers that totally get it. They just want the talent. They realize in some cases there, there's no other way to get the talent because they couldn't hire this person. Um, and there would be barriers internally, whether it might be the HR structure or the risk management guys, or procurement. And so there would be all sorts of obstacles. And there would be, I mean, one of the big problems for companies was, quite frankly, they had no idea how many people worked for them because there were these rogue spends of of folks that were just trying to figure out, how can I get these consultants in here because the organization won't let me officially. So I think the, the pandemic when everyone went to remote work as part of the, the pushback was around the fact that, you know, the person has to be on the team, the person, we have to sort of own the person. I, I actually had someone once tell me that there was, they were concerned there was no career path for this consultant. And I said, the consultant doesn't want a career path. They just want to work on this project. So I think the, the pandemic has opened people's eyes to the, to the fact that work can be done remotely, which quite frankly is one of the biggest um, sort of stepping stones to getting to the point where you can assemble teams from anywhere. So now there's, that is no longer a, uh, that's a red herring now, as they say. So I, I think that that will help in the long run. I think the fact that people now recognize that they could, they can have a remote team having the best talent on that team is what they have often talked about. You know, it's all about the people. It's all about the the mix of talent. Well, now all of a sudden they can bring any mix of talent to solve the problem. So I actually think in the long run, it will help a lot. I think in the, in the short run for folks who were displaced and all of a sudden are hanging out their shingle, it's hard. It's hard. It's hard to start. So for some people in the short run, it may be tough. 
um, which is why in the short run, a lot of people have gone to the, the on-demand platforms. You know, I, I, I look at the gig world as stratified by virtue of expertise and convenience, if you will. So the convenience factor is the commodity world of the lower skilled on-demand platforms. It's the, the Ubers, the Lyfts, the DoorDash, the Grubhub. You know, I, I don't really care who does that. I just want my Chinese food soon. And by definition these days, I want it on my porch and, you know, <laughs> contactless. Um, then the next tier up are the uh, sort of the, the skilled folks who could be anything from plumbers and handymen to event planners and coaches and translators. And then you get up to the top rung of the expert folks. Um, sort of in the middle rung, I probably want to meet the handyman. I at least want to explain to the person what I want done. Same with my web developer. I want to maybe look through their portfolio of stuff. Um, and and, and there's a, an, an additional way I would qualify that. At the expert and most serious or, or most um, credentialed professional level, it, 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 it gets vetted even more. And so, you know, at, that, at those top levels, you really need that expertise to, um, to demonstrate your abilities. And so that's where if somebody's trying to jump into that immediately, if they have that expertise, great. But if they're still building their portfolio, if they're still kind of building their practice, it it can be harder now. So it's a whole different set of skills, really, because when you get hired for a job at an office for the long term, you are looked at for fit, cultural fit, your personality, how you work with this group. If you're coming in as a gig worker, you're coming in maybe for one project and you may or may not be remote. So does that change the attributes that people should be working on? Does it give anyone an advantage or a disadvantage? Well, you know, I tell people there are a few things. Uh, first is the how comfortable are you working by yourself? Because even though, even if you're part of a team uh, and now you're part of a Zoom team as opposed to an in-office team, you are still uh, a part. A part, you know, one word, you know, you are apart from the team because you are not part of the company, if you will. Um, so there is that separateness and how do you feel about that? The other aspect, quite frankly, which is really hard for people is uh, can you say no? Because if you're an employee and your normal work is doing X and your boss says, hey, do Y, you do it. If you are a contractor or a consultant, an independent worker, I use the terms uh, interchangeably, and you have contracted to do X and your client says do Y, you can't do that. You actually have to say no. You have to say, no, I contracted to do X. If you want me to include Y, we can expand the scope. But that that isn't what we, what, you know, we agreed to. And that is not a normal reaction for a lot of people. And especially for people who have always been employees. Yeah, it's a whole different thing. But personality-wise, you know, putting on my Myers-Briggs hat as, as chairman of the Myers-Briggs company, we actually have done studies about 
the um, differences in personality type relative to not so much who's likely to become an independent worker, but more the the challenges that certain people would have. Um, and of course, there, there are certain uh, personality types that are more risk averse, and obviously it would be harder for them to to weather through some of the, the feast and famine periods. Because one of the realities of uh, especially the professional cohort is if you're working really hard, you're not marketing. And then all of a sudden you finish your projects and your pipeline may be, may be pretty empty, which quite frankly is the value of the platforms. But you, it isn't, you know, you build it, they will come. You do have to work those platforms. You do have to check in with them. You do have to see what's on it. You have to respond to things. You have to, uh, you know, there's work involved in maintaining your, your profile and in maintaining your, um, whether it's your, your LinkedIn site or your own personal website and the things you might post about if you're a subject matter expert or something. I mean, that all takes work and that's work that's non compensated. That's work that's business development of your own. Okay, so we have this reality where we can do this. Some people are open to it, some are not. What are companies thinking right now? Are they liking this model more or are they still cautious? Because I've spoken to many companies over the years and a lot of them really like to own their teams. You know, they they don't like the the short-termers as much. They want to think someone's really given everything to it. As you say, they don't want to be in the play, in the part, they don't want to have anyone say no. Like they like the people who will say yes to everything. I think there is a recognition, you know, the, the, the hot term these days is our businesses becoming agile. And the mm-hmm. whole notion of becoming agile is you try something out, you pivot, you make it, you, you do it quickly and yeah, you go from there kind of, instead of, you know, long deliberative process, it's making sure that everything's perfect. And the ability to bring together the right team has become more important on those who have adopted this agile mindset. So I think there is a recognition uh, with many companies that having that right person on the team, whether it's inside or out, uh, so, so an employee or an external person is really important. And I think there is a recognition of we have to honor the folks that we're bringing in from the outside because the the studies that show how you get high-performing teams shows there has to be psychological safety. And psychological safety means that everyone feels like they are legitimate members of the team and true contributors. So if your employees have this view of, oh, you know, Karen, she's not a real employee. She's not as good as us then you're not going to have that social or uh, psychological safety and you won't have as great performance. So, so companies are coming, are recognizing that. And they're also recognizing just like you have um, companies like the, the glass door, which I don't know if they're in Canada or not, but they rate, they are, yeah. uh, they are. So they rate workplaces by being great places to work. I think it's only a matter of time before they're doing it for, are you a, a, a client of choice? So it's not just that you're an employer of choice. Are you a client of choice? Because the truth of the matter is, some people will not work this way. 
you know, I, I think the, the poster child for you can't hire these people is data scientists. So McKinsey has said that there is probably a shortage of 8 million data scientists. And data scientists can write their own ticket. There is a web platform, a digital talent platform just for data scientists called Expertify, which came out of the Harvard Innovation Labs. And Expertify, you you qualify for it based on your Kaggle score, which is, you know, the hackathon stuff that serious data scientists do. And um, if you are a company in, not to diss the Midwest, but you're a company in you know, the middle of Kansas that has a lot of data and you want to bring in a data scientist to help you innovate some processes or whatever, there's no way you are going to get somebody to move there. The only way you can do this is to, to structure a gig so that somebody gives you, you know, three months of time or something because these, these guys don't want to work that way. Um, so that has become a reality in a lot of areas. So what percentage do you think we'll have five years from now? I know it's a hard one to call, but right now it's mostly employees outside of tech, particularly mostly employees and some gig workers. Do you think we'll see a really big difference or will it be subtle? You know, I think it's a, um, it's a, my guess is it will always be a certain portion of the economy. Um, you know, right now it's about a third of the U.S. workforce that works independently. But what third is it? You know, I have this view of a portfolio career that people would have. So you go to a company and you learn some stuff and then maybe you go off and start your own consulting practice or start your own business. And you, you do that and you work for a couple of years and then maybe you go work for a client and you really like that firm and you decide to join that firm. So you'll sort of go in and out of of different modes of working, whether it's working for yourself or working for someone else. So uh, various studies have demonstrated that people think that 80% of the, of the workforce will be working independently at one point or another in their career. So it's not at all times. So, you know, the, the num the, the ratio of who's working independently might not increase that much more than it is today but it will fluctuate between who's doing it. And there are certain fields, quite frankly, that will always be delivered uh, in person and not remotely. Kind of, you know, the, the electricians, the handymen, the people like that. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, those firms will probably always have employees. Well, you can have an employee, but they don't have... Wait, wait, Sorry, even for something like that, if you're talking about a surgeon, yes, they have to be there in person, but you can still have gig worker surgeons, right? They don't have to be employed by one hospital. Do you see Absolutely. that model happening? Absolutely. Um, there are uh, issues around um, docs about, quite frankly, malpractice insurance, but when somebody figures that out, they will. And you know, that is the other aspect of this. There are problems with the social safety net and benefits and things like that. But there's also a whole ecosystem around the independent worker world where there are companies that are offering benefits for um, independent workers. In fact, I just read one about, a, a, a I think it's called a MariPay, a, a, a startup in Kenya that is doing uh, financial products 
for gig workers at the lowest rungs. We're talking, you know, drivers, delivery guys, but for them to be able to smooth their income so it's it's more constant and be able to to get loans and and pay back those loans from their proceeds. Um, there are guys in the insurance area. One of the big problems for senior consultants is professional liability insurance, which can be cost prohibitive. But you're doing a huge product or project for a big corporation, and they tell you you have got to carry ten million dollars of professional liability. That's a non-starter for a lot of people. Well, this company called Bunker Insurance here in San Francisco created a product where you can you can get that just for that project, which before then had not been a possibility. Um, and another thing they've done is create a synthetic workers' comp coverage because again, big companies are going to require that that vendors on their premises carry workers' comp coverage. If I'm an independent worker, why would I ever write buy workers' comp for myself? I mean, that doesn't make any sense, but kind of the lawyers and the risk managers at the big companies don't see it that way. So they've created a synthetic workers' comp policy to solve that problem. So there are innovators out there in the fintech world um, and in the app world, I mean, there are apps for everything now to manage contracts, to manage expenses, you name it, that really make life easier for the independent worker. Well, I often use the example of Hollywood where it's not just actors who are working independently. It's like makeup artists and guys on the set. And they've had unions for a long time. They have managed this for a long time. And they have ways to manage their income and save for retirement, some better than others. But there's a structure there. So it's not like we just discovered this. Some people are exactly. acting like we did. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Marion, there's so much we could talk about. Uh, I think we're running out of time here, but I'd love to extend this conversation in future. Thank you so much for being here. It's been a pleasure. Marion McGovern is an expert on the gig economy. Well, that's it for today. If you do want to learn more about Marion and find out about her books, please check out our show notes. You'll find the links there. If you want to connect with me, you can find me on Twitter at, at @relentlesseco. If you did find this discussion interesting, please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. It will really help people find this podcast and continue the discussion around the future of work. Now, thanks so much for listening. And as always, thanks to Stokely Audio for audio production. To learn more about work and the future and to see show notes, go to the workandthefuturepodcast.com. You can also contact us at comments at theworkandthefuturepodcast.com. The Work and the Future Podcast with Linda Nazareth is a relentless economics production.